Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. This is Walkins. Welcome with Bridget Fetessy. I'm Bridget Fetessy, and you are welcome. <laughs> You know the drill. Please subscribe, rate, comment, share, reach out, tell your friends, send smoke signals, whatever. We love your feedback and we want to hear from you. This week, we have Melissa Monti. She's a mindfulness coach, a certified yoga instructor, and Reiki healer. In her podcast, Mind Love, she discusses mindset shifts, energy frequencies, and modern mindfulness. She pursues her passion of helping people become their best selves on her website, mindlove.com. Melissa is an old friend. We've been through a lot together. So there's a lot of good stories in this podcast. We are here with Melissa Monte. You didn't take your husband's name? No. No, I did not. (laughs) (laughs) Just get right into it. (laughs) Melissa and I are very old friends. We go way back. How long has it been now? 10 years. 10 years. 10 years. Yeah, this year. Maybe more. Oh, really? It was 2009. Oh, my gosh. So. Tell us just a little bit about yourself, your bio, if you will, before we get into it so people know who they're listening to. My old bio or who I am now? (laughs) Well, you're who you are now. Okay, great. Well, I host a podcast called Mind Love. I was working in startups for quite a while and marketing and all of that, but then just got to a point of toxicity with my CEO Mm -hmm. and it was the push I needed to start my own thing. So I kind of started it as a side hustle, but it took off last year and uh, was able to fund my life. So um, now I'm just expanding that in all the ways that I can, teaching uh, people how to expand their minds to expand their possibilities. Cool. And that's the side hustle that took off. Yes. Is And what do you do? You teach courses? Now I do. So okay. it started as just a podcast, built my audience through that, sponsorships and such. But um, just recently, I s- launched a course and now I'm working on my next course and hopefully a retreat. That sounds cool. Fun. Well, let's go back to the beginning of your life. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. No, let's start probably where we met because I feel like that's a good entry point. So Melissa and I met in 2009 and we were on a bus to Vegas. We met in my actual rock bottom. <laughs> oh, was it? Yeah. Wow. You would have thought the the after math was, <laughs> but nope, that was me coming up. I mean, you were killing it for a long time after that. I wouldn't have known that was your rock bottom. <laughs> but I guess when you're when you're on a bus with 40 women on the way to Vegas, that is for someone like you and I, it felt like rock bottom. That's why we bonded. We bonded at the bottom. So we how how did we end up on this thing? Our friend, right? We had a mutual friend. Yes. I don't even remember where I met her. Um, some girl that I met invited me to partake in this Vegas weekend where they basically, for those of you who don't know, they just bus in <laughs> chicks from LA <laughs> to show up at events and just be hot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or whatever. Like... I I don't I never I did not feel like I belonged with this group. Let me tell you. First of all, I didn't go to college or anything. I'm the oldest of five, so I have sisters, but I I never had the experience of a sorority or anything like that. So 
they all these girls all seem to be pretty familiar with traveling with that many women but it was like traveling with a herd of turtles our mutual friend was in my sorority but i wasn't only in a sorority for eight months until i got kicked out for drinking too much that is impressive (laughs) i know i was in the biggest drinking sorority at san diego (laughs) state university (laughs) And they couldn't handle this. <laughs> <laughs> that is impressive. We get kicked out of a sorority for drinking too much. They're like, you're going to embarrass us. You're embarrassing our drinking name. Well, to be fair, I think I also gained 10 pounds that year. And I think that's why they. Oh, my God. I guarantee that was it. 100%. Yeah, that's not. It was not the drinking. <laughs> <laughs> so we. We were on this bus. I don't know why I said yes to it because it's not something I would normally say yes to. I think that's why I said yes. I I always had the like, well, you you know, try anything once, which for the record is not great advice. I would not give to my younger self. And we went, although it did lead me to you, Melissa, but we went on this. It was like a party bus to Vegas? Yeah. Weren't they partying on the bus? Yeah. And basically there was a promo thing because a new club was opening. And so they wanted a bunch of girls to be at these certain events at certain times and they were getting paid oh for God. it. And it's all coming back to me right now. I <laughs> was on that bus because I didn't currently have a place to live. So I figured this six go <laughs> the next four days. <laughs> I've lived like this too. <laughs> I don't remember why I was on the bus exactly what led me there at all, but I was definitely in the middle of like a bender of some kind, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and we went to Vegas and we did not really fit. We were like the two odd men out of this group. And so we instantaneously bonded and were at each other's, you know, like attached at the hip for the whole time. And we had to go to these pool parties. <laughs> we got to go. I mean, it wasn't like, oh, we need to like go work in the salt mines. But we it, did have to dress the same as all the other women and be there at a certain time. Yeah, it was. I So one of the things that we bonded over was... Melissa strikes me, you are a very free spirit. And that was, I. the reason I had never done anything like this is because I had always rolled solo. I was the girl that just went to Coachella alone with no tickets and $7. And I know a lot of people out there are thinking, yeah, it's because you're a chick and you can do that. And you're right. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. But I still would, you know, roll the dice and end up in, in random places. So it was weird to have to be like on this schedule with all these women who are like putting their eyelashes on and do you remember when we stared at that one woman that just stood there and posed for 90 full minutes (laughs) (laughs) and we were like waiting for her to not be on and we're like no one's taking a photo of her but she looks as though somebody's taking a photo of her and it was just in case somebody just in case (laughs) and that was early social media days and then somehow we ended up at carmen wasn't it carmen electra's birthday party yeah. yeah, it was her birthday party in the cabana next to ours and we were in her cabana and I I was like, I don't know what it says about my life or her life <laughs> that I'm at Carmen Electra's birthday party. Like that's either sad for her or me. I'm not sure. And she seemed so sad. And it's interesting too because I feel like this is such a good frame frame of reference for what we were talking about before we even started podcasting when we were having lunch 
that there's so many ways our story in LA could have gone. And there are so many ways that, you know, I wish that I knew where every girl on that bus was right now. Because it, and you, you roll those dice and you're like, well, just a girl in LA. <laughs> it's weird though, because, okay, one other girl that we met there that was kind of in our group, we had like four girls, but you and I became really close friends. Mm-hmm. But two other girls were always with us. Mm-hmm. And oddly, my husband's closest friend is his is her husband. Oh wow! So now she's back in my life, and I didn't remember her. And she's like, "We know each other." And she showed me a picture from oh, Vegas God. with you in it. Oh God! <laughs> I wonder the pictures. I just remember that we were in a parking lot for a long time driving. <laughs> I was like, like, "Which time?" <laughs> when we were in Vegas, remember yeah. we were just driving in circles and circles and you and I were both like, we're going to get sick. <laughs> we're freaking out. I don't know. There, That whole, that was the beginning of our friendship. And then we were just off and running. But I, I think that you're one of the few friends that I've maintained in sobriety, which is rare because usually people, you know, you meet when you're in your like party girl phase mine was an extended party girl phase. You don't uh, necessarily keep them more than a night, let alone more than a couple of times partying, let alone into getting sober. But one of the reasons I really wanted to have Melissa on this podcast is not only just because we're very old friends, but she is someone I admire for constantly reinventing yourself and and you've evolved. You're not in, you know, the, like I said, there's a lot of ways that that, that marble could have rolled. And for both of us, you're gritty. You know, you're, there, is, there is that sense of, I feel like no matter where you get dropped, you'll end up on your, you'll, you have like nine lives. We also ran into each other at Coachella one year. <laughs> Dressed the same <laughs> by ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> we, I, I had found someone's phone on the ground and it was smashed to a million pieces. But I, I hacked into their phone. Well, it wasn't it was open? So I went on their Facebook page and I said, "Hi, I have this girl's phone." <laughs> and then everyone was commenting on her Facebook, like, "This is amazing." <laughs> and she managed. She met me, and then I ran into you, where she was. The girl was meeting me. We both had our cowgirl ads. Yeah, just exactly the same. <laughs> At Coachella alone, it was just so classic. The two munchkins running around. I always felt like. Oddly, during that time in my life, I don't know, <laughs> this probably sounds strange, but you were somehow my stable friend. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, you were, you were a pretty stable friend of mine. Yeah, and I think it's it's like you were one of the only friendships that I knew, no matter what we were doing, if one of us went to travel the world for however long, we could just come back and yeah. meet at the same place. Mm. But it wasn't going to be like meeting the same person. It was going to be like, well, what did you discover during the last year? How did you grow? Because yeah. we always we always were just a slightly different or better version of ourselves. And then you got married. It's always the ones. Always. I mean, I was like, this is you were the first one of my friends from L.A. really to get married. And you were the last person I probably would have put money on in Vegas. I was As, still wondering if I was going to go through with it to the Oh, day. my God. I was shocked when you're like, I'm, I'm getting married. I was like, what? Melissa? No. This is like when I got married, right? Where you elope and you kind of just are like, yeah, I'll try this on. 
but you're still married. Well, that's how we actually decided to do it. We're just like, let's see what this is like. And how long have you been married? Since 2015. So. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's coming on four years. Wow. I feel like it's been longer. I feel like everything's been longer. Yeah. Time has been doing weird things. (laughs) So tell us a little bit about how you got to your rock bottom, I guess. I mean, I've had multiple rock bottoms. You were kind of around at my last rock bottom, actually, right before I got sober, that summer before I got sober. The moment. Yeah, I mean. The moment with the maid and her son, <laughs> her little kid. I was just telling somebody about that. <laughs> I um, I went through a series of rock bottoms as well, and they kept getting lower and lower, but I've been working on a keynote recently and finally figured out the through line. I'm like, what do any of these have in common other than I was just incredibly stupid? And so, um, yeah, it was, it started with just being raped and then developing a severe eating disorder and losing my dad and losing a friend to suicide all really close together. And so by the time all of those things happened, I was just numbing. It was like my life hack. And so at first I tried to just ignore and I think I did that with the rape and I just kind of pushed it down and acted like it never happened. And then when things got, things started piling on. How old were you? uh, When I was first raped, I was 15. I'm not laughing. I'm laughing because we both have like the like multiple. And so every time someone asks me like, how many times, you know, it's like, what, have you ever been sexual assaulted? I'm like, which time? I think if you can't find a way to laugh. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you know, I know. it's like the uncomfortable, oh God, it just, type laughter. Yeah. Um, but yeah. And so uh, by the time I was in college, I was like binge drinking and then I was taking a ton of Adderall all the time and then other drugs came into the mix and I never felt like I was like drug addicted, but mm-hmm. I was addicted to the, to the experience of like, you know, I couldn't be alone. Mm-hmm. And so when I was, would find myself alone, I'd be kind of freaking out. But I ended up right before I met you, I was in a terrible relationship with a guy who seemed too good to be true. And then he was, and it was like <laughs> the facade was just cracking and oh, I kept yeah. making excuses for I it. I remember now. And so I ended up realizing he was cheating on me and addicted to meth, had a gambling addiction and was secretly robbing houses. Oh <laughs> so, God. um, he, I, I dealt with this for a long time. And like, it was like when I found out he was cheating, it was almost like I took out, took it as a challenge to prove my worth in a way, because mm-hmm. I had, Like, that's what was happening to me. It was like self-worth and I was getting validation from everything around me. So I had to like replace that image. It wasn't coming from inside Mm -hmm. whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And so when, um, right before that, I finally got enough strength to be like, I can't get away from him if he's around. So I got to go to Hawaii. (laughs) I know hard times, but I went to Hawaii (laughs) for a month. (laughs) And um, I know this, this story is so common, by the way. It's like a story here all the time from women. They're like, well, I had to get away from this guy. So I moved to Hawaii. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I went to Hawaii and I had a friend there. So I just stayed with her for a while, started getting my routines back and all that while he was while I was gone, he was playing mistress with another person he was cheating on me with and he borrowed my dog. And so they were like robbing houses together. So uh. there's one eyewitness account that I had to fight, but uh, I had an alibi. I was gone in, in um, right. Hawaii the whole time. Long story short, 
it was I ended up getting a really bad attorney being too ashamed to talk to my parents about it, even though they knew what was going on. But mm-hmm. my stepdad was currently volunteering at that police department in the homicide investigation. Oh, wow. My mom was working at a church like this wasn't something I wanted to talk to with them about. And so his super expensive attorney was coaching me and his mom was there all the time. And since we were arrested together because I was wearing jewelry he gave me that was stolen, uh, uh, he um, so you went to Hawaii and came back and got back together with him? I, it's like I built myself up on the outside, but I was still pretty right. empty inside. So it only really took one phone call. And I think I wanted to show him how well I was doing. Right. And he Classic. had this whole story about how his mom gave him money to rebuild his jewelry business. He had a story, like a, an intense story for everything. Right. Definitely a sociopath. Mm-hmm. And so um, if if I would have went to trial to prove my innocence, he would have gotten a minimum of 10 years. But otherwise, he could have taken a deal with the time served in rehab because he went straight to rehab mm-hmm. afterwards. And I didn't feel like I could do that to somebody, which mm-hmm. pro tip, bad choice. <laughs> do it. Wrong choice. <laughs> because I realized you just can't, you can't cushion somebody's rock bottom without going down with them, number one. You're not, I'm not going to be like irreplaceable by like loving him anyways. Right. He he's going to he's calling that lesson into his life for some reason. Right. And so, of course, I finally when I met you, I finally was like, I can't take this anymore. And I moved to L.A. Right. But remember, I hadn't moved. You're still dealing with all the stuff. Too. I didn't live somewhere yet. And so I went on that bus ride with right. you. And then I you took me home for like a week yeah. and I stayed with you and I looked for places in LA and yep. that's when I moved to LA. So you kind of helped me get back on my feet. Only he came, moved into a halfway house right next to me. Uh-huh, I remember threw all a brick through this. my windshield, yeah. broke into my place when I was sleeping, had to move again. And he ended up getting arrested for another string of robberies right after that and spent the last seven years in jail. And I just got a Facebook message from him the other day cause he's out. Oh, which was startling. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. Does he seem okay? He's engaged. He got engaged while in jail by somebody he knew in high what? school. <laughs> oh my gosh. I mean, I know. I will sit, take a moment of silence for her. <laughs> His soon to be wife. And, and keep her in your prayers. <laughs> right. Better, yeah, dodge that bullet. It's so hard to get out of those toxic relationships. I don't think people, you know, it's it's easy on the outside to be like, just leave. But when you're in it, it's so insidious and so becomes so much a part of your identity in so many ways that to extricate yourself from the situation seems it's like you have to cut off a part of yourself and then you're not left with very much. So it's not like there are tools or resources or, you know, your trajectory if if you're coming from numbing out pain you're already lost so you you wouldn't have gotten into a relationship like that although with sociopaths it's different because they are liars but generally you wouldn't even put up with it if you had some solid sense of self where you are coming from and you certainly at the first sign of abuse or emotional abuse or whatever or lying you would say all right bye yeah i mean now it's so hard to look back at and I watch other people going through relationships and I can feel that trauma response sometimes mm. of just being like, get out, get out. Mm. Because yeah, I wouldn't have ended up in that if I had an ounce of self-worth at that time. But at the same time, he was a master manipulator. He drove a Benz and the first book he gave me was Don Miguel Ruiz, Mastery of Love. And so I thought that's why he was so nonchalant oh because he was like mastered himself. Mm. It was just all, it was all a game for him. 
But it, I have to be thankful for it because I mean, I thought I was going to like go off and get a PhD when I was younger. Right. I was in all advanced classes and, and all sorts of things. But I, I was, I applied for like 600 scholarships or something. Yeah. <laughs> like I paid my way through college yeah. and scholarships and, and, um, I probably would have just ended up in a comfortable job that made really good money, not living my passion and kind of following that straight and narrow. Yeah. But I took a felony at age 22 <laughs> from uh, for somebody else. And then I was like, well, now what do I do? I'm, I have too much pride to go. Oh, so you took the felony for him instead of... He took two felonies. I had to take one in order to... Instead of him going to jail for 10 years. Yeah. And, so, um. and it would have been like a long drawn out. Uh, trial process and all of that and I just didn't know what to do like that's what I was coached to do from his attorney my attorney stopped showing up Um, so um it was the dumbest thing of all time but uh then it it pushed me into my entrepreneur career that year I actually ended up teaching myself digital marketing won some ticket to the biggest digital marketing conference at the time I went to Austin at the very end, there was a contest called the Wicked Smart Competition for Best Internet Marketing Secret. And I won a new computer and it set up my freelance career for two years. Wow. So, um, and ever since then, it's just been, I almost like limitation in certain ways because it narrows down your options yeah. and it gives you a clearer path. It's why I like being vegan too. <laughs> that was a bankruptcy for me for sure because I lived in a cash world for like 10 years and it forced me, I didn't have credit. So it forced me to just get what I could get. The money I had was the money I had and that was it. And it taught me so much about budgeting and learning just how to, if I couldn't afford something, <laughs> then I couldn't afford something. Yeah. And that was okay. I would find a way to make it happen eventually or something better was coming or whatever. But that was a interesting limitation. And I always joke that God keeps me poor because it keeps me grounded. I'm like, if I had tons of money, I'd never, <laughs> never be here ever. I would be in Asia right now for sure. I would be in somewhere. Yeah. If I had tons of like resources and money and was like uh, making six figures, there's no way you'd be able to hold me down. <laughs> I would not, I've thought about that. Like I with, would be traveling, but I wouldn't be writing as much and I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. I certainly wouldn't be doing this podcast right here. I certainly, I just wouldn't be doing forced to kind of find my voice and com- connect with people in the same way. I would be out. I'd be connecting with people, but I would be, I would be like gone. Yeah. I've thought the same thing. I always thought the only way I was ever going to get married is if I married for money, that was just going to be my plan. (laughs) I remember being like, I mean, that is like, like I said, where these marbles roll, a lot of the marbles that come to LA roll in that, you know, I always think that when I'm out in LA, like, where do these girls end up? But a lot of them just end up getting married and, you know. Yeah, I think I have too much to give and it's like... In yoga classes. Yeah, the universe kind of, I don't know. If I would have found somebody, I would have ended up there. You know, I would have ended up riding those coattails forever, being unfulfilled because I'm not that kind of person. I have to be creating something somehow. I had that moment. (laughs) I would have just ridden it out. I'm glad I didn't. And the... It's interesting too because I have that same feeling of if I hadn't ended up in rehab in 19 and had a boyfriend who I, some of you have heard this story. And if you haven't go back to the podcast and listen to it from like two or three weeks ago, 
Um, but just bad example, boyfriend, crazy guy and ended up in rehab. But I too was, my dream was to go to an Ivy League school. And one of the biggest resentments I had when I got sober was to my parents because your parents are lovely, but my parents, um, my life, my upbringing was like a, a lot, a lot, very chaotic, I guess is a polite way of saying it. And I ended up making choices that just continued into my 20s. But and I had a ton of regret that I made those choices in my 20s. Like I just I felt I spent probably five years just at a bar and waitressing and blacked out and married and just gave up on myself. And I was like, God, I could have been so smart. You know, I just really threw it all away and felt like I had wasted all my potential and that I was too old to actually get any of that back. And now I'm so grateful for all of it, honestly. And because I wouldn't really be able to identify with anybody, I would probably have gone to like Ivy League school, got some job that was like made, but I would be a douchebag. I'm pretty sure I would be like a huge douchebag. <laughs> yeah. And maybe on like marriage number two with a pill addiction. I mean, we don't we don't know. Maybe not. But I I too think that even if I had followed the path that was laid out before me when I went to college for the half a year and it dropped out, I would have probably was getting a degree in communications. Like, what is that? You know, <laughs> I would have got some marketing degree and just been on the hamster wheel. And uh, having that rock bottom forced me to get creative and also get in touch with what I really wanted to do, which was be a creative in whatever way that looks. Yeah. And I wrote out my rock rock bottom for a long time, which is why you're like, wait, those times after weren't your rock bottom. <laughs> I, I was still there. Um, <laughs> my rock bottom was like a decade. Mine too. That's why we I had a decade long rock bottom. <laughs> Um, it was, yeah, there are peaks and valleys. I've, I've had many rock bottoms and there are different kinds of rock bottoms. There was the more physical one when I was 19. I, the recent time I got sober, I would say it was like an emotional rock bottom where it was mostly internal. Ex My life looked okay on the outside, but internally I felt like I was rotting. Yeah. Just, I don't know. I just felt like I wanted to die. You know, I didn't want to kill myself, but I wanted to die. That was what was happening right before I started my podcast. But I think part of it is growing and becoming more aware. And mm. so then there's feelings that I've had even recently that were my best days back in the day. But yeah. but I'm just aware that they're there. And so at that point, I was like working for a startup, vice president. Things were I was making money and uh, living in one of the most desirable cities in America. Yeah. And, but I was so miserable and I was mm. carrying over to other things. And so then that was another push. And so I almost look at them as not like just a rock bottom. They're all just these launching points yeah. for the next thing. And it depends on if you're going to launch back into the water or like launch up onto your next platform. Yeah, yeah. I, it, I feel like we were talking about this at lunch. I wish that I had had podcasts when I was in my 20s and I wish that I had had some semblance of I I many of my rock bottoms came from giving up on myself in some respects but in other respects I'm a hustler and a survivor and I always just kind of did what I had to do whatever the next step was and some you know sometimes it took me up north to a farm sometimes I ended up in New Zealand like th that 
that freedom and just determination to persist. I once spent three hours trying to figure out the best way to sell my panties online. (laughs) (laughs) I remember this was, and, and I've talked about this too. There was that, you know, those moments where in 2008, I was so broke and I had lost all my business. And I think I talked about this on one of the story hours, just, I was thinking about stripping and I was probably like 30 years old, which is pretty old to be considering going down that path, I, f- I think. Maybe not. And I have nothing against, I have a lot of friends who are strippers and sex workers. No no problems with this as a career path. But being an addict, I remember being like, maybe it's time <laughs> to get on the ball. <laughs> I was so broken. I didn't know what to do. And I was driving and I stopped at a stoplight and there was a girl going into the strip club. And... I just vividly remember being like, yeah, my idea of what stripping is and the reality, it was still light and she had her heels in her hand and like, I just imagined her get going in and getting ready for work. I'm like, yeah, I'd be a drug. I would be doing drugs. Like the only way I'd be able to, to deal with just that the vibration is just so, you know, low, energetically low, I feel like in those places. Right. That, it's like your walk of shame is they're walking to work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Half the time. I mean, just the, oh, the outside of it, you know? What I yeah. Mean? Like, and I know a lot. It's again, no, no, like whatever you want to do, do that. It, I think just that environment for someone like me is like toxic. And I think about how, what if I made that choice? Cause I was desperate. I had, my car was about to get repoed and I had faith in the fact that if I stayed the course with my intuition and conscious and kind of just knowing myself, knowing that, Hey, you've had a history with drugs environments like stripping are probably not good for you and also i would have been so bored i think it would it's not stimulating enough i self-destruct when i'm not stimulating that that much is true and i think that's another thing that i've observed with you over our 10 year rock bottom is that you too are when you're not stimulated it seems like all of that creative energy you're not like externally destructive. I feel like we both have share that it's like the creative energy turns on us yeah, and destroys. us. No, it's actually the keynote I'm working on is all about how the opposite of self-love is self-destruction. Yeah. And I believe that to be true because I think we just have the wrong ideas of what self-love really is. We look at it as like personal care, but it's not. It's just, if you were to love a child, you'd be loving that child in a way where it's not giving them everything that they want. And it's about developing a relationship with them, uh, holding space for them to explore their passions, just presence. Right. And letting them fall and get up. Yeah. And And how often do we give that to ourselves? Just like being present and so Mm -hmm. then people have this look of mindfulness oh i'm not a mindfulness type person but have you checked in with yourself do you know what you're feeling on a day-to-day basis do you know the signals that your that your body sends you when something's right and wrong Mm -hmm. because that's like developing a language it's learning a language and the first time you go it's going to feel like chaos and you don't know which things are the looping thoughts that have been fed to you and what's your own inner voice and that's why you have to have that stillness yeah so that's been my biggest just realization over the years of instead of just always reaching for the next thing, because that's, what's going to destroy you. But what we're rapid paced individuals. So it happens to us much faster right. <laughs> than other people. So you've pulled yourself off on numerous 
like a lot of cliffs. I think you're good at pulling yourself back when you feel like you're going too far. What do you think that is? Why? What? Like, what is that? Because, and I've had this conversation with a lot of people and I'm particularly interested in it with addictive personalities, people who have had, you know, experience with drug addiction and food eating disorders and whatnot. There are a lot of us that don't make it. And I don't know that you can figure out what it is that why some people do and some people don't. But in your own personal experience, what was the what was the thing that kicked in? I think it's because regardless of what I put myself through, I have always had high expectations for my future. Mm. And so what happened for me was the ability to put that off as long as possible. And then when I started realizing that when I stopped putting it off, those short times where I surrounded myself with a new group, like yoga teacher training was a big, a big time for me because not only did I have less time to go party with my party friends, but I was surrounding myself with (laughs) a a level, just a, a slight level of awareness. And don't get me wrong. I would do the yoga class coming off of a bender no totally I mean, this is a very common story too. <laughs> we had i feel like day. all party girls at one point or another are like let's go get some yoga teacher training let's <laughs> dial it back we had one day where we had to stare into each other's eyes for mm. like two and a half hours oh my god it was insane it was like a mind warp and one of my friends in yoga teacher training was on that bender with me we hadn't showered <laughs> and we have the we have the yoga instructor like taking us on a visual journey think about your hygiene she actually said Uh, and my friend emily and i were just looking at each other like trying not to laugh feeling so bad for the people who had to sit that close to us (laughs) but yeah i and so it was just like i jump up a little bit and then go down a little bit and jump up a little bit and the more i jumped up the more i realized that that was the state that i felt best in that's when i was in control and so it's it is still so easy to like go on a day-long netflix binge and i'm not saying nobody deserves that but for me personally i do not feel good after that it feels like it's going to rejuvenate me but really i feel drained i feel like i wasted a day it's so much better to go unwind with a hike or a walk and yeah balance that out and so now the more aware i am the more i'm starting to really understand the things that bring me down and bring me up yeah do you think those 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 things like yoga i didn't have any tools so do you feel like because you every time like you said you go a little bit higher was it because you were gathering tools to help lift yourself up basically yeah and that's kind of how i look at all of my growth. It's developing a toolbox that start to become a little bit more innate. Mm-hmm. And so at first it takes a lot of work of going back to those things. And I didn't intend on developing tools. It's not like I went out and was like, I need right. to fix this. But I realized listening to a, a book that teaches me something on Audible during my drive all of a sudden felt better than just watching an hour of TV or something like that. And so then I would do that instead. And then all of a sudden I'd have a few new thoughts that weren't my own destructive patterns Mm -hmm. that were floating around in there. And those just started to build up. And now a lot of the things that used to be a tool I had to scramble for or look to find are just part of my daily life. Right. Right. That's interesting. I was just talking about this with my sister today about how, when I first got sober, one of the most powerful 
repetitious mantras that they say is pause when agitated or doubtful. And it was just like pause when agitated or doubtful, pause when as and I it was a conscious thing. I had to constantly remind myself and now it's almost reversed where when I'm agitated or doubtful, I know that means to pause. And so it's like a sign. I'm like, oh, you're agitated. The other day, I almost unleashed on this person online. And I was like, you're agitated, pause. And keep pausing until you're not agitated anymore. And by the time I wasn't agitated, I was like, oh, thank God. So glad I did not give in to that first. My first thought is not usually the right one. Yeah. I was going through something and you tend to be my person that I reach out to when I feel like I'm a rock bottom's coming on <laughs> and all you texted back was pause when agitated. <laughs> and now that is one of the things that yeah. I've, I've mentioned it on my podcast. A it's few a times. powerful tool and or doubtful is the yeah. other part I always forget because I uh, the agitated part is so much more visceral. Like, doubtful I'm never is doubtful. so I'm just agitated. I'm always agitated, <laughs> but I'm never doubtful. I wonder why. And <laughs> and now when I'm doubtful, it's like, oh, you don't know what to do. Do nothing. That's okay. Just pause. Yeah. When you don't know what to do, do nothing. That's so simple and yet so powerful. And so many things will reveal themselves if you just give it space. I used to push so hard, push my web designer so hard, push everybody around me so hard to just you know, be, I wanted to control every, everything. And when it wasn't happening in my time, I just had a very hard, hard time understanding that. And now it's, it's like, it'll get done. But we also grew up in a time where the only way to get ahead in the corporate ladder was by living in that masculine energy. And now it's kind of starting to balance out. It's like the doing is all the masculine energy and the feminine energy is the receiving and letting things sink in and trusting our intuition finding that balance has been an interesting journey just i lived in my masculine most of my life too yeah like, what's the feminine feel like <laughs> <laughs> i remember when you were going through that i'm like what is this feminine energy <laughs> yeah it's, it's interesting too to see how much you know i i come to you a lot with um you've read so much and you listen to so many podcasts and they're all in that I would say like the motivational speaker-ish space, the Tim Ferriss zone. <laughs> but there's we were having a conversation about imposter syndrome because now I think what's happened, and it's amazing to be able to sit here and have this podcast with you because you have a successful podcast and I'm writing. And when I met you, I was waitressing and teaching yoga and working with kids and doing whatever like hustle I needed to do. And I feel like both of us have found our groove and our voice and our stride a little bit. And that is a miracle. But I also wrestle with imposter syndrome. And I was calling you the other day. I feel like I'm self-sabotaging because it's so, if that voice is so loud, those old voices, even though I know that this is always where I wanted to be. And like you said, you set the bar high for yourself. So even in my rock bottoms, even in my crazy partying, I was still delusional enough to be like, no, I'm going <laughs> to figure it out. <laughs> I think we needed each other's voice during that time. Yeah, we're we like, did. We're going to let ourselves swim in this shit for a little bit. But, yeah. But we're going to get out and clean ourselves up. <laughs> yes. But now that I have, I'm like, no, you're still just a mm -hmm. piece of 
poop in the Vegas pool, you know? Well, we've created all those. It's been really helpful to me to understand like how the brain works and to realize that like, it's almost like lighting a fuse that just starts its own circuit in there. Mm -hmm. And so I used to think thoughts and wonder how valid they were. Now I think thoughts and if it's not for my highest good, then I know that that's just a thought loop that I need to retrain. Right. And so all it is is repetition and and taking action and this balance between the two of getting those out. And so it, it helps me to know that even like Ariana Huffington suffers from imposter syndrome. Right. Everybody does. Everybody does. But how do you come? I know that you said recently with your course, you were having a moment and how do you how do you combat it with yourself? And what what do you do to overcome those feelings? I think imposter syndrome is so real and identifiable and so many people can relate. And I personally don't really have that many tools to combat it at the moment. Mm -hmm. I mean, other than just continuing to work and putting one foot in front of the other, which is what I think works for me. But I feel like the, you know, recognizing that I'm like, I don't have a degree. So why am I even talking to any of these people? Or more importantly, why are they talking to me? Well, it's interesting because when I was, when I only had the podcast at first, I was afraid to read comments and I don't get a lot of negative comments just because of the space that I'm in. Yeah. But, uh, you're like, I'm like your Twitter, Bridget, which I've seen. <laughs> I I wouldn't, I don't know if I'd be able to handle it. That, like, it was a, for especially at the beginning stages, that takes a lot of courage mm-hmm. and strength to get through. But I think, first of all, you're already building up, I call it your hard candy shell. Right. <laughs> and so that's good and bad. But like something flipped for me when I started working with people on a closer level, Mm -hmm. because then I started realizing it's kind of like when you work in marketing and people unsubscribe from your email list and you're like, Oh my God, what did I do wrong? But then you realize, wow, it costs a lot of money to have an email list and the higher it gets. Like you want people to unsubscribe because they're less likely to buy from you or whatever. So the more I hone my offerings and what I really, what value I want to leave in this world, I know that I'm not going to be for everybody. Right. But that doesn't matter. It's not about them. It's about the people I am connecting with. And I know on a deep level that now I am. And so to, I still do little things to combat it. Like when I started this course, I thought, well, why would somebody listen to me about how the mind works when I know somebody over here who has a PhD in neuroscience? Right. And like, what, like, why isn't everyone flocking to that person? And so I invited her to do a Facebook Live within the group and I was just trying to add value in the ways that I felt would cushion the things I felt like I was lacking. Right. But somebody actually reached out and said that they didn't want to learn from her. They wanted to, they specifically said, I didn't want to learn from somebody with a PhD. I wanted to learn from you because I relate to you. You explain things in a way that I understand and we have this and this in common. Right. And so that was an immediate mindset shift that I could feel it was like something cracked and that doesn't bother me anymore. And then I also had two therapists in my group who mentioned that they were experiencing a deep transformation, not just for themselves, but what they have brought to their practice as well. So it was these two ways of being like, okay, that was the thing about needing a PhD. And then also like therapists over here having so much more training are learning from me. Right. So just because when, when I realized that a lot of people missed out on a good amount of life experience because they had their shit together right. early on, <laughs> I was out there shoveling School it with my life. hands. Yeah. yeah. And, 
And I just have to trust that I have value to give. Mm. And I'm also never going to let myself go long enough to not keep growing. Yeah. So I know that with everything that I learn, I have more to share. So that's just the way I deal with my own imposter syndrome. Yes. Yeah, it's it's real. It's definitely it can be debilitating, I think, and in, in really crippling kind of ways that are manifest in really weird things like procrastination or writer's block or just those those productivity essentially and i love um Ayn Rand wrote a book about the art of nonfiction that my editor, my first editor recommended I get. And that woman is a beast about writing. But one thing stuck out to me so much and why I say getting to work is what really just helps me is uh, she said, I show up at the page no matter how I feel. The blank page is my employer and I show up and it doesn't matter whether I'm filled with self-doubt in the same way that my employer wouldn't care. The blank page doesn't care. There's a problem and I'll solve it by writing. And that has been tremendous for me. Just sometimes just like getting it. It was like today in my uh, class at the gym, we were the I'll be having her on my um, podcast too. She's a bar teacher, but she has this amazingly upbeat energy and she's always reminding everybody that it's a miracle that we're there and that we should be grateful. And I love the gratitude reminders constantly throughout the day. And she said, sometimes I was like, you know, I just some feel like I can't get out of my own way, but the only way to get going is to get going. <laughs> she was laughing. She's like, yeah, that's, that is what her, she's launching a whole cl- like class at the gym and that's her whole thing is you you move through movement, you know, like yeah. you learn through movement. Yeah, it's true because then you start to, when you take action on things, you start to see yourself and what you create mm-hmm. from a different perspective and it's out of your brain. And so that was that was one of the things that even just when you're when you have looping thoughts, limiting beliefs are a real thing. So it right. sounds like this crazy woo woo thing, but when you understand how the brain works, it's also the retricular activating system. And so how that works, it's uh, there's a book called Psycho-Cybernetics that's really amazing. It's one of the original self-development books, but they gave it to Olympians and understanding why visualization is so important. Mm. And so nobody thought of like, oh, the woo-woo manifesting when it was given to Olympians and they're picturing themselves <laughs> crossing the finish line. Right. There's a reason for that. And so the spirituality side of things that I like to believe I believe that everything's going to be backed up by science. And if it's not like it's got to work together, you know, so there's a science side of it. And so when you have these thoughts like the imposter syndromes and you don't find a way to get it out, then you just allow it to keep looping in your mind and your body's going to be acting on autopilot in a way to confirm those things that you believe. And so all of a sudden you're like, well, why am I drinking a bottle of wine and watching Ted Bundy on Netflix. Right. <laughs> when, right. When I know, this is like, a very this is specific example, <laughs> Melissa. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> it seems very specific. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it just it's it starts to work for you, and that's why I find it so. That's why writing is so yeah great. But even if I'm not going to be writing a piece, I will sit there and write the things out that are going on in my head, just mm-hmm. so that I can Express see the holes yeah. and then ask. Well, what else is true alongside of this? And just expand that a little bit mm-hmm. and kind of steer a new path. Yeah. I think that it's interesting how much work, you know, we we have the luxury of having time to do the work on ourselves because we don't have 
kids and we make our own schedules and I, I've paid a high price in some respects. I've paid a high price for the freedom I have, but in other respects, I know that those were choices I was always making. I was always choosing what will give me the most freedom and part of, you know, not choosing like a corporate path and dropping out of college was knowing that I would go get a degree, be in debt, and then therefore have to get a job that I hated. And it's like, I I honestly think part of the reason that I self-consciously, subconsciously destructed in college was because I saw like just the eight years unfold, you know, it seemed like just autopilot. Mm-hmm. And that terrified. It was like I didn't. I didn't know how to. <laughs> I, I don't recommend using heroin as the exit strategy for that <laughs> fear, existential crisis. But I do think there was something at play there, and that is the not knowing yourself, getting in touch with that inner voice and intuition. I didn't have any tools when I was nineteen. There's no way I would have been able to sit down and say. Well, what's really going on, actually? Yeah. I remember being in college and suddenly realizing I wasn't going to use the degree I was going towards. And so at first I was like, well, I know how this works. You just need the degree. But then a huge thing that I have uncovered about mindset blocks in general is you have to know that the work you're doing is going to lead you on the path. Like it's Otherwise, I will lose my motivation completely. And that's what happened. Also didn't help that our first assignment was to learn to write an obituary and my dad had just died. So my like one journalism assignment that I was writing my own dad's obituary and it was just like, it ruined it for me. And that's when I was like, I don't even want to do this anymore. Yeah. Were you going to school for journalism? Yeah. And what did you end up getting your degree in? I dropped out. Oh, okay. I only had uh, 15 credits left. Oh, wow. To get a degree. You went farther than, than I thought. Yeah. I was exempt from a lot of college for AP classes and taking a lot of foreign languages. Uh, would you? Could you still go back and like get your degree if it's only fifteen? Yeah, but now I almost like that I don't have yeah. it more than <laughs> wanting it. Yeah, I'm, it's interesting because I recently I've been interviewing all these people and there are PhDs and sometimes I just feel like an idiot talking to them. So I've been thinking about going back to school. But as my uncle said to me, he's like, you're in school. You know, he's like, what are you going to go to school and then be with indoctrinated with like a certain ideology that you already know you're pushing back against and you're already learning from all these people. So why would you go? He said, if you, if somebody mentioned something, you go get the book, why, or listen to a, you know, podcast, why would you go? Why would you do that? Plus (laughs) any curriculum that you're going to get in an institution, in a university is, is 10 to 15 years behind schedule, sometimes even more, because it takes that long to get the curriculum approved. And we right now in the age of technology, everything's, everything's changing so quickly. Yeah, most of the knowledge is outdated. So I do think it, there's something to be said for, for learning to keep a structure and to follow through with a commitment and things like that, which I learned later in life. But I didn't, I can't think of one college professor that even stood out to me. I can't remember anybody's name, which yeah. is insane. <laughs> I remember my honors English teacher and, yeah. you know, their teacher and then my like fourth grade teacher was amazing. Yeah. He was just so creative and he made school so fun. 
but the, that's pretty much it. I didn't respect authority enough to get a lot out of it. Shane was different. He he has some teachers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I really yeah. Out to him, but not me. Yeah, that was another thing that you and I really <laughs> bonded over was our <laughs> lack of respect for authority. But I do think that's part of just the entrepreneurial spirit. Yeah. I don't know that you can be you it takes I just never wanted a master, you know. Yeah. My inner and this is one of the things that I have a hard time with is the balance. Like you said, the Netflix the other day I watched like two days of Netflix and I cannot remember when I did it. But my my best friend's husband is also an entrepreneur. And she said, it's OK, Bridget, because you're self-employed. So you're always the person, the little tyrant in my mind is like get pushing, pushing, pushing all the time. And I don't know how to not be at work. I yeah. don't know how I have to go to a class, like get myself somewhere where I'm focused on something else. Cooking is a huge thing for me because it is a task oriented process that takes all of my attention mm -hmm. and it's beginning to end and I have to, it requires focus. Reading is another thing, but it's hard for me to really any other time get out of that. Like you should be doing this, 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 this. I feel like it's really helpful to me to schedule that time in though, because that's when it really feels like it revitalizes yeah. me or I re-energize. Otherwise, if I'm just like, like making the decision based on emotion, <laughs> yeah. I might need it sometimes, but for the most part, nothing about that makes me feel good. And yeah. it sends me into a deeper spiral. And so I slept. I needed it. I definitely needed it. I have to say I was beating myself up for part of it. But at the end of it, I did actually feel restored because I slept so much. Yeah. And I, my, I was like, maybe I was just tired. You know, part sure. of maybe I was just I wake up at like five every morning and I might have just needed a lot of sleep. <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and there were things going on and I was, you know, heartbroken and maybe I was just tired. Yeah. I never feel bad with sleep. Yeah. I take naps now. I'm fully late yeah. in the 30s. I never napped in my 20s. What was your dark night of the soul if you had one that you had to, like we've said, there have been many rock bottoms, but what was there one particular moment that you feel like when you kind of cried out in the dark? The worst night of my life? I don't know. Was there a moment where you felt like connected to something, where you felt that, that angst and felt connected to something bigger or or felt supported by something that I don't know. I, yeah, I feel supported a lot. I feel like those are two different times for me. My, the dark night of my soul, like the worst moment ever was in that jail cell. Mm. Um, I wrote it out. I wasn't going to call and ask my parents for bail. So I waited to get out on my own, uh, recognizance mm -hmm. and it wasn't even just that I was there. Although that was like, a huge moment because even when I was younger and I used to like play video games, when it, if I would lose a life too early, I'd just reset because I always right. wanted to go in full force, right, full energy. Right, right. It's what's driven me to get so many certifications mm. and to always take the advanced class and things like that. And, and there, I realized I just couldn't hit the reset button on that. It was going to be with me forever. Mm. And what was even going to happen at that moment? I had no idea what was going to happen. Mm. Was I going to spend time in jail? Like what, what, what was, I spent a few days that time, but the worst part was this moment. And it was like this weird awakening to the, where the color of the room almost changed. But I realized that I wasn't mostly worried about 
what was happening with my life, I was worried that there, I didn't have enough privacy to purge my food, ah. <laughs> which was a really that like that. I had like an out of body experience where I was like, you just spiraled in all the ways I have chills right now thinking Whoa. about it. I was like, you don't, I didn't know if I could fix that. Like it was such, so it had so taken control of me that I couldn't imagine a future with anybody because I Whoa. couldn't imagine coming out with the secret who would find somebody that's purging their food all the time attractive. Like uh -huh. it's like a disgusting thing. Like I had so much shame and disgust around it. Mm. And then realizing I should have so many other worries and I'm still worried about this and I'm still trying to shave my legs with the tiny razor blade that they gave me. What? Why? Yeah. Like I was so concerned about it was just, it was just bad. How did you get over your eating disorder? It was slow and steady and it started happening during yoga teacher training, yeah. um, surrounding myself with different people that were talking about different things that weren't so image obsessed mm -hmm. was really helpful. It was like it was slowly cracking that shell. And then it was it was like I found happiness in mm -hmm. a certain way and that started to heal. I was still fully healing my food issues. I stopped. I got over bulimia almost officially when I met my husband mm -hmm. and that was, it was just like all of a sudden it went away and I couldn't really understand. Um, I had a few moments where it presented itself back in my life for a, a second, but I had the tools by then. And so I think it was really just developing a different kind of love for myself Yeah, because then it wasn't that I had to prove myself so much with how I looked or what other people thought of me. That's not where my image came from anymore. It yeah. was coming from me and I had more control over this than and who the people that I was so worried about, do I want them in my tribe anyways? Yeah. <laughs> you know, they say the experts say that it's seven years for an eating disorder, really from beginning to end. It's so I've, I've always had so much admiration for women who struggle with it and overcome and battle because it's not like drinking or drugs where I can just say abstinence you have to basically redevelop your relationship to food. And I've been likening it lately to tech addiction because my friend was saying, I don't know what to do with my kids. They have this tech addiction. And I was like, you need to research what they do with food addiction because I feel like it's the same mechanism because you can't rob your kids of technology. They have to have a healthy relationship to it. But that there isn't really, there are some programs and you're starting to see the beginnings of it, but... I really do think that there's a lot of overlap in those two addictions in terms of it's something you need. You can't make your kids, you don't want to hinder your kids, mm -hmm. but it's also something that can be completely toxic and bad for you and destroy your life. Especially when you're those, I mean, I can't imagine having what they have now when we were kids. I think there's just so much about the way most people live their lives is about reaching outside of yourself right. for all of the things we're afraid to be alone with our mm -hmm. thoughts. I watched a documentary called American Meme on Netflix and it was following these influencers around and all I could think was how miserable each and every one of them seemed to be. They were literally saying things like, I can't be alone with my thoughts. Uh -huh. It's like, that's not being alone with yourself. That's, if you feel that way, then you're at the mercy of absolutely every Are they just addiction. addicted to their notifications? And this image that they right. set up, like a lot of people don't think when they become an influencer, is this what you want to be known for for the rest of your life? Right. If you are 
Otherwise, you have to start over. And so it becomes a different struggle. And so this one person in particular had developed this misogynistic party world vibe where like poor right you're like slave to it yeah yeah and like the fat jewish is another one that was on there he's i didn't hear of him before this but apparently everybody else has millions of followers or something like that and he's just talking about oh he doesn't even like that image anymore and all this stuff and it's just like there's a lot of power to create but you've got to have some sort of conscious perspective about what you're creating what you're gonna be in five years with yeah That's really, that's interesting because I see that on Twitter a lot too. A lot of these guys in particular on the right who have cultivated a bit more of a like extreme conspiracy-esque and mean-spirited following, but now it's almost like they have this audience and they have to feed this audience and it's like a monster that you've created that you, and then it's not who you want to be. Yeah. It's not the person you want to be or it's not your brand, you know, everyone having a brand. But how would you know what your brand is? It, you reminded me of this girl. I just liked her. I somehow found her when I was on a farm. I needed to do setups because it was just sitting all day. And this it was like this uh, influencer on YouTube who did workouts. And so I started doing her ab workouts and whatever. And I loved her. But then slowly <laughs> over the course of the whole fall, she like had a breakdown because it was she's in Australia and it's moving into their summer. And eventually ended up being like her. It's not funny, but she ended up having this heartfelt one-on-one with like her. She's like, this is real talk. I'm depressed. And this is, I don't know how to keep up with this and the pressure to always be skinny. And I've gained weight and I don't, I don't want to even do my video. It was heartbreaking, Yeah, but it was crazy to watch her kind of go through this. You could see her like kind of coming undone. And yeah, I wonder what that's like when you, you, yeah, you create a brand around being fit and then you get injured and you gain weight and now what? Those were the similar thoughts that I felt. I remember being at the depths of my eating disorder and loving my body for parts of it. With something like bulimia, it's, it's hard because you, there's a lot of fluctuations. Your body will hold on to food when it needs to. And so every other year I would be my ideal weight. And then the other ones I'd be like a little bit heavier than I wanted to be. And I remember realizing I set this standard for my body that isn't naturally created. Right. So I've got to now choose between being healthy and just assumed I'd be bigger, which is odd because I balanced out. (laughs) Right. It's like now I, I eat basically what I want. Um, I mean, I eat healthy anyways, but it just kind of balanced out to what it was anyways, right. like what I was striving for. And instead of being this constant struggle, I just let it set in. Right. And so realizing that like I I created an image that I couldn't uphold, though, was a really scary thing to have to let go of and then have to explain yourself. I saw somebody just post something about wishing they never had abs. They're like, I wish I never had such an amazing six pack in my 20s because now everyone always asks me what happened susan you let yourself go (laughs) i'm like that's a that's a something to consider though when you're working so hard is this what you want to do for your whole life and have you attached your identity to it right that was something that happened to me with yoga when i got injured i was um out of yoga for a while and oh shit like the body image stuff that came up and all I had no idea I was shocked all of the 
self-worth and all of this stuff that I had been hiding under yoga, which is from an external, you know, which seemingly gets you in touch with. I was like, how did I find a way to hide from myself even in yoga? That's what's crazy. It's so sneaky. The ego is so, it's so powerful. It can kind of attach itself to, you know, you see it with cult leaders and spirituality and it can attach itself to anything that is seemingly even good for you. I mean, there was a point when I first got sober and you and I both meditate and love it and it's a huge tool. But when I first got sober, I was definitely like addictively meditating (laughs) (laughs) to the point that I was using it as an escape. Yeah. And same thing with travel. I was like, yeah, I'm going to travel and see the world. And after two years of it, I had to ask myself, okay, at what point are you just running, escaping? Yeah. Escaping from your being just with yourself. And I find life will have a way of kind of making us sit with ourselves if we don't take that time. And I think there's always another layer too, because I might not have been ready to deal with certain things. And that's why it popped right. up later where I, I, it's peeling the, I thought about the that onion. when the Me Too movement first started. For some reason, I had like this crazy response of I just like broke down reading that letter that the victim wrote to Brock Turner. Yeah. And I wondered where it was coming from. And then I realized I had completely suppressed my very first rape. Yeah. And so that's why it it bubbled to the surface. My first numbing mechanism was to just distract myself and push it down. And then it came up when I was ready to deal with it. If it had come up a couple years earlier, I don't know. Maybe I would have broken down in a whole new way. But instead, I I was very emotional for like a week. And then I like dealt with it. It's okay. I confronted it. And I I allowed myself to feel those feelings. And then I figured out my way out. (laughs) Well, that's why, I mean, therapists will say you can't just rip off somebody's scab and not give them and leave them just like out there raw you have to be able to give people tools and take time and let things come up as they're supposed to come up instead of forcing them out because it can be you can re-traumatize people or yourself or and the me too i think is so hard on women in particular just the news cycle itself is so re-traumatizing i mean every time we go into now a sexual assault news cycle i'm just like Tra-la-la. i just try and keep it positive i have i have a whole i mean i wrote a whole thing about it just what i have to do for myself but it i think i've seen it very much affect women around me when that it's just heavily like in yeah. your face constantly because well, a lot of the you try and just move on you know I don't yeah. want to have to be thinking about this every freaking week for the rest of my life. For sure. And all of a sudden you feel like, but this happened to me, so I need to be standing and doing. It's. I find the news cycles difficult now anyways. I used to pride myself in staying informed. And now I have to, it's almost like I got to put a filter there because I feel like everyone's just, each side is trying to just trigger the other people and i'm like do you not know how psychology works like you're not gonna bring anyone yeah <laughs> it's just like a constant fight it's it's not fun or and it doesn't even seem like it matters it does and it doesn't because both sides have gone so, so far off the deep end with- it just doesn't seem like it matters because nobody remembers anything from three days ago yeah. so or until they need to weaponize it so the only time that something comes up from the past is not because it was something we learned from it's because now 
it's like using it in a like what aboutism like well what about the Covington kids well what about Kavanaugh yeah. and instead of actually saying what have we learned from these things but we aren't taking it's all just information it's not knowledge so everything's being processed so quickly I don't even think the human brain has the capacity to how can you extract knowledge from anything if you're not even still long enough to contemplate it we used to be able to like go on long walks and (laughs) you had to write a letter you know and about your experience instead of just you know having a reaction and tweeting it until the next news cycle i know and also there's two things about that too whereas it's about whoever is the loudest there's a full spectrum on every single side i don't even I get triggered when somebody calls me left because I don't want to be automatically identified with everything that everyone says. Right. (laughs) I'm not saying 99% of those things. More and more people are feeling this way, though, I think. Yeah. Because it is the extremes that are that get the most attention. Because it's clickbait. It's clickable. (laughs) It's how marketing works. And then so everyone's fighting against each other over things that the majority is not even feeling or doing. And I find going on social media difficult because I know what it's doing to my brain. Right, it's literally I know. training I know. my brain to be distracted all the I time know, and to expect a new piece of information every three seconds. Or a new like ding. I mean, I read when I first went on Twitter, I found all these studies on Twitter and what it does to your brain. And it is 100% a drug. You know, the every the way it responds to your brain, the way it reacts, the way it trains you. And I think in in some respects, Twitter has been great because it has forced clarity and you know, there's something to be said for that pressure of being concise in a short period of time. It does train your brain to be to think on its feet quickly. On the other hand, it is destroyed my focus, my ability to focus. I just that's why I've been cooking like every day because cooking forces me to focus and I've been reading a book every night before I go to bed because I can't freaking read anymore. Yeah. It's like I'll read two sentences and I'm like, like why are you on the same topic yeah. in the same paragraph? <laughs> <laughs> and why isn't, you know, there's a scroll or like movement. Like do books need to be 800 pages <laughs> or do you mean 800 characters? <laughs> yeah. It's not good. And even I was never really good with the listening when, you know, when you take those tests and you're like reading comprehension, listening, I get so distracted visually so easily. I'll try and listen to a podcast when I'm walking home and it's like, oh, and there's a bird and there's a thing. I'm just (laughs) visually a person that gets easily distracted. And so I need to be like with a mask on in isolation to really take in anything that I'm listening to. And so already podcasts are are kind of out for like my attention span is already challenged in that respect. So reading was always the thing, the way that I got my knowledge. And now even that it's like I'll read two pages. And if it's, not, you know, the minute I'm bored, I'm like, I want to look at my phone. (laughs) You're like, there's no timestamps on any of this content. So one of the things I do is I... I will go days where I'm tech free and or phone free and I'll keep a little list of how many times I want to look for my phone, reach for my phone and why, just so I can see why I'm and it is so and it's it's crazy because it seems to be 50 50 knowledge and boredom or just restlessness. But I do use my phone a lot to get information. 
you know, like, what's the population of Sudan? Like I something when you're having a conversation. But the interesting times when I want to check out or even when I'm having a conversation with someone and I feel the need to look at my phone. What in the, enough? That is so bad. Yeah. And it happens a lot. I have an app called Forest and it's one of those like time focus apps where you set a, a time and you're not supposed to leave the app or else you'll lose or whatever. But this one will plant a little tree and it it adds up points and plants real trees in the forest. <laughs> so I oh, feel like I'm cool. doing something really good by not checking my phone. That's really cool. I love it. So the at the end of my podcast, I always ask my guests the same two questions. What is your biggest defect of character that you kind of have to work against on a daily basis or in general? I think addiction in general. Yeah. I will get addicted to anything that presents itself into my life too many times. And so I have to just make sure I'm always balancing things out. But I do also find it as a gift because a lot of people don't, have as much of a need to develop awareness mm. and so i have to if yeah. i'm gonna get anything done and it reminds me to be conscious in whatever i do like i mean we just accept the food that's on our tables and and the way media displays itself like all these things are not in our best interest mm. it's, for, it's mm. for big businesses and things like that so i i just it helps me to bring awareness into everything that i do just make sure it's in my highest good and what is your greatest asset? I have a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> I love that answer. I love that answer because, and you know, I, I don't want to end on this note, but to circle back to the story, we kind of brushed over the rock bottom. Am I allowed to tell this story? And, yeah. and so many, so we were on like a three day bender and it was a holiday weekend and we just lost track of time at this guy's like high rise in Marina Del Rey. And suddenly the maid came with her like six year old son or seven or eight or however old he was. And I was mortified. Like there were drugs everywhere and nobody had slept in days. And I tried to like keep him contained and talk to him like a normal. I was probably like a, a crazy person, but just trying to like keep him watching TV. And he was telling me about his cute weekend. And it was, I mean, you want to talk about pitiful demoralization. That moment was like rock bottom for me. It was one of those moments where I was like, what am I doing right now? There's yeah. like a maid and a child. And it was just having the external and to see both of us now from that place and that moment in time, which I think was just so wild and bananas. And now just knowing what we've both struggled with in terms of self-worth and self-esteem and have you respond with like, I have a lot of them. <laughs> it makes me so happy because we have cried together and we have, you know, we've, we've been through a lot together. Yeah. A lot. I mean, we've brushed over it like, you know, in the broad strokes, I would say, but truthfully, you and I have carried each other through some gnarly shit. I'll never forget when you picked me up from the airport when I was like having a breakdown. Oh, <laughs> In the in the penthouse of the Ritz Carlton, <laughs> and they were like, you were like, if I got pulled over right now, like, do you have any drugs? Well, that depends, like, in my system. <laughs> he goes, he goes, do you know why you're why you're getting pulled over? Uh, he's like, for speeding and for speeding, and you're like, I'm sorry, officer, I didn't know it was possible to speed in L.A. <laughs> and I think that's why he let us off. Yeah. <laughs> joke oh god 
So yeah, tell us about your yeah. assets. I like that I'm kind of packing a lot of information. I, I like to read, read and listen to things from all different areas. And I have an ability to just find the through line through all of it. So the things that everything has in common. And I think it goes from just growing up being skeptical and finding the holes in things mm-hmm. and wanting to fill them. And so then I'd hear something three years later that fills the hole over here. And that's really helped my podcast because uh, I tend to give different perspectives than other people are used to hearing. Mm-hmm. And tell us about your podcast and where we can find you. My podcast is called Mind Love, Modern Mindfulness. So it's it's so good. It's all about just expanding your mind to expand your possibilities. As I said earlier, get yourself to think out of the box and realize your own power. So I bring on inspiring people to interview and get different perspectives on things. And that's my go-to podcast when I need inspiration. Oh, thanks. It is like my, I love it. It just, people always tell me that this podcast makes them uncomfortable and have to like (laughs) face things they don't want to (laughs) face. That was one review I got recently. <laughs> it's like, I hate your podcast because it makes me face things I don't want to face. <laughs> I'm like, I'm okay with that role. That's yeah, fine. That's a good role. Now, when you're feeling bad about yourself from my podcast, go listen to Melissa's. <laughs> yeah, it's on any to podcast build yourself platform up. Or, or mindlove.com. So I also have a daily inspirational email called the Morning Mind Love mm-hmm. that people love getting. So Great. Well, and where can we find you on social media? Mind Love Melissa, M-E-L-I-S-S-A, or Mind Love Podcast. Amazing. Thank you so much for being so open and vulnerable and honest. And thank you for your podcast because it helps lots of people. And thank you for being a sister on this journey with me. You've been You've been seminal in my development, I think. And I don't know that I would be here. You're one of the people that you know I reach out to when I'm in the dark likewise you've always been my little spirit angel (laughs) (laughs) find those people in your life all right well thank you guys for listening please subscribe and tune in and all that good stuff and hope is very anxious right now (laughs) she's ready for a walk and have a good day bye bye it's time for the weekly check-in with bridget and cousin maggie check-in time here we go Got a lot going on this week, Bridget. I opened up a shit storm. <laughs> Tell everyone I about up it. A can of worms. <laughs> I didn't mean to. I just woke up. I've been having all these crazy dreams because I've been reading that book. So you've been publicly shamed before I go to bed. Uh-huh. They're not even dreams. They're nightmares of just getting mobbed. <laughs> wow. That's disturbing. Online and off. It's not like you don't have to deal with that in your daily life. I'm sure. Having it follow into your dreams is terrible. I'm sure it's affecting my subconscious. What is the can of worms that you opened? I've been thinking a lot about self-censorship and I've been asking my friends in LA what they're not saying. I'm just curious because they all call me and they confess their things. I really have realized that I'm only in the position I'm in because I have nothing to lose other than my life, which is, you know, that's dangerous. But I don't have kids in a school system. I don't have a job at a corporation. I'm not married to someone who has a job that I need to protect. I have literally nothing to lose at all in terms of social cost of speaking my opinion. So I'm 
people are like, you're so brave. And it's like, well, or I'm just in a position where I can do this. You are in a unique position, but you are also brave. Nah. A lot. I in the same position as you and I have no desire to <laughs> speak publicly on social media about anything like this. Yeah, but that that's you. You have a job, you know, you. Yeah, but those guys don't care. <laughs> <laughs> They might if suddenly the mob came for you and then they started writing bad things on their website right, and started, I mean, that's true. Actually. That's what they do. If they went to your Yelp review page and started saying, you know, that you're a Trump loving MAGA wearing Nazi. I mean, you think it's funny, but this is what happens. I know. I, I'm that's not I'm just picturing something else in my mind, but you being a Trump loving <laughs> MAGA hat wearing Nazi. Yeah. I'm just picturing the conversation with my bosses and what that would look like if that really became it could a, happen became to you because of me. We shouldn't even really talk about it. I shouldn't I shouldn't even plant the idea because honestly your association with me could get you <laughs> <laughs> But getting back to the original point, you might not agree, but I do think you are brave because you're willing to take the shitstorm that comes with it. I know, but part of me, you know, it, it can be very hard, but then there is a part of me that <laughs> that kind of likes it. <laughs> of course there is. Well, you wouldn't do it if there wasn't that part. I mean... I just get mildly amused at all the outrage. Yeah. You've always liked to push buttons. Because it's funny. <laughs> it's funny when people get so worked up, and I know that it hurts feelings sometimes, and I don't want to hurt feelings. No, but I think it's also important. It's There's a lot of things because from the reaction you're getting from people, what you're saying is important. It is. So anyway, the shit can of worms that I opened, I I posted a, one of my just outreach calls to people about what, how free are, I said, how free are you? Are you? How often do you self-censor? How often do you self-censor? What are you not saying? Why? You know, what What are you afraid of in terms of the social cost at work or f with kids or whatever? Right. And it has been like the outpouring has been nuts. I've been getting email. I have hundreds of emails yeah. and and messages in my Twitter, d indirect messages. And I should probably post it on Facebook, too, because th those are people that are even more kind of politically minded I feel like sometimes and politically neutered on Facebook <laughs> <laughs> They're just, oh. if I was on social media I'd probably get flack for using that term yeah I don't think you can use <laughs> neutered anymore you can't say anything I know so I've been getting emails and it was funny because James Lindsay last week's guest he right. saw that I was posting this and he's like Bridget I just want you reached out to me and he said Bridget, I want you to know you're going to a dark place and I'm here for you. <laughs> and I was like, what the hell is this guy talking about? Like, that's a little melodramatic. And six or seven emails in, I was like, what is fucking happening? Oh, you were reading me some of the emails and I was horrified. I didn't know about racial indigestion. Is that what it is? Uh, yeah, that's there's a book about food and eating other cultures, cuisines it's as racist. a white person is racist. Yeah. Just, like no Thai food for me or Indian what? or Sri Lankan. Uh, the insanity is quite breathtaking. <laughs> <laughs> 
And it's funny because you're a lib. You know, you're. Yeah, you're definitely... I mean, I'm definitely. Well, I've swung much more center these days. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> and Maggie, you can't come center because you're my touchstone to the libs. Yeah, but I've never been a, like a crazy leftist. There are just all like there's some sort of collective everyone's lost their mind thing going well, on. Well, it's just... the, the emails that are the most touching to me and are the ones from like the 15 year old girl that we just read. Right. I just got one from a 15 year old girl in a boarding school and she was saying how like an elite New England. Yeah. And just how there's conservatives, but they all have to. And this is true in Santa Monica. One of my friends, her son, they have this. It's a totally diverse group. One kid's Asian, one kid's black. And they're all super anti SJW and love Ben Shapiro. Ben Shapiro is like these teenagers flock to this guy because uh-huh. he is at least, I think, based in reason his Mm -hmm. arguments are and what they all explain to me that they like about him is that he reveals his process and his podcast so he walks them through his process of coming up with whatever his conclusions conclusions are are. and they even if they don't agree with him they appreciate that he lays out his process right it's like a math equation and I don't think anyone is doing that on the left. That's just kind of here's and James Lindsay was James talking Lindsay's about this. James Lindsay is a perfect example of this. Yeah. I mean, it's opened up my eyes to a world that I was not aware of this this kind of insanity. That's the only word for it. <laughs> I, I don't and even it, know. I used to kind of always push back when these guys on the on the right are like, the leftists are all bad shit crazy <laughs> on the campuses. And I'm They're like, brainwashing the students. Simmer down, guys. And now I've been hearing from the actual students. And, and it's yeah crazy i mean ben wrote a whole book about it and Mm -hmm. the then one person was sending me pictures and it's all marxist posters and meet meetups and how to um be a socialist in the workplace and then there was this whole one where there there was a whole safe space and it was only for people of color and there were people who were guarding the cafeteria space and you weren't allowed to even go in there if you were white and these are the posters. It says this space is only for indigenous people, people of color and queer empowerment, resisting oppression, social justice organizing. This space is not for non-indigenous people, non-people of color and non-queer people, faculty and administrative meetings, projects unrelated to social justice. If your work neglects to center indigenous people of color and queer folks, then please take it elsewhere. What good does that do? <laughs> what good does that do? Separating, separating people into groups. Into you groups. Know did that? You know who else like to do that? I don't understand. It's like the coddling of the American mind. That yeah, book that yeah. I still have to finish. Yeah. The lunacy. I'm trying to get those guys on the podcast. Yeah. I mean. Oh, they're they're in deep. It's, they they were in deep in that book too. In this, I mean, not as deep as not James as deep as James <laughs> who basically had to like fake. It, it's like that movie where they became heroin. At, he, he's so well versed in the rhetoric. He was explaining something on his Twitter today to somebody where they were they were saying they didn't understand some aspect of of the social justice, and he was explaining it, and it's. He really deeply understands they're crazy and how, you know, he said it's the thing is, is it's all justifiable in the magical world. It's like the rules of any kind of fiction where you're like, yeah, this makes sense. If you buy into the world and all of the you bypass logic and reason. (laughs) (laughs) 
It's really bad. I mean, James's podcast was brilliant. It was definitely one of my favorites. Yeah. And uh, it's a fascinating world, but I can see why he warned you about it because diving into it too long, it's a dark place to go where it's it's really quite terrifying. Well, so then I reached back out to him. I was like, you were right. That meant too deep. He's like, it's too late for you to average it. I have support for you if you need it. But it is, it, I mean, hundreds of emails, but it's not, it's from the young kids. Like the girl who emailed me, she said the guy that these seniors are, there are some senior, one senior in particular is very vocal. And he stood up and, and he's, he's gave black. a speech and he's black about microaggressions and then everybody and he's said, conservative his viewpoints are conservative yeah. and everybody said in one of the teachers hated it because it said it hurt people's feelings like, <laughs> <laughs> oh god the term snowflakes is starting to make a lot more sense to me maggie these days. used to hate it when i called people snowflakes. i it still hate that term but i'm starting <laughs> to understand why jesus it's so funny too because everybody's like, I remember when I was red pilled in my in their emails, and red pilled is not a good thing, you know. It's a, it's kind of the catch all term for anyone who just was like, I woke up and I people would say I've been red pilled, mm-hmm. but red pe- I've been yelled at by men's rights activists and alt right accounts and the far right, and yeah. they're like, you don't even know what red pilled is, you dirty slut. Yeah, <laughs> so like. I can't win. You take shit from people. I cannot that is- win. Like I'm not. I'm not red pilled enough. They're like red pilled is because the true meaning of red pilled is essentially like the the men's rights act men's rights activist meaning. If you go on the red pill Reddit where it's like women should be in the kitchen, they're basically yeah, just supposed no. to be for breeding. And I feel like I've been going along on this path that. Really hasn't changed very much, but all of a sudden the left has gotten yeah, much more extremely left. far left. Yeah. No, I haven't changed at all. No, I'm just like, my opinions are basically <laughs> what they've always been. I learn, <laughs> I try and learn more, but <laughs> no, I can call out insanity when I see it. Yeah. Regardless no. of whether it's the party I identify with or not. Yeah. And people give me a lot of shit for going after the left more than the right. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like everybody does have their role in this insanity. And I there's tons of people going after the right. Right. Why do I need to be another voice? Why the left is my former party. I feel like I'm the canary in the coal mine. How did you lose me as one of your members? Right. How how? I'm such an easy person to relatively it's hard to it's much easier to i feel like to spot the hypocrisy in a party you've are you used to identify with too well and i feel it's more my responsibility right and if you can't question the dogma of your own party it is exactly that dogma right. if you're not that it was it was exactly like when i wrote that piece about feminism when i went did the free the nipple thing and i thought i was gonna go in one way and i came out and i was like put your shirts on <laughs> <laughs> what is happening? There are teenage girls out there trying to free their nipples and they're perverts everywhere. And it it wasn't what I expected. And then I had all these thoughts and, and my editor said, you know, it's good that you're questioning the movement because if a, if a movement becomes so rigid that you can't question it, it's no longer a movement and now it's dogma. Right. And that's not good. No, it's dangerous. Yeah. I, I'm looking forward to whatever you write 
about any of this stuff that you're getting. Honestly, I think a lot of it will end up in the book too, mm-hmm. but I definitely have to find I'm I mean right now it's a freaking 20,000 word piece if I write it, uh-huh. so I've got to find a cohesive. I I have it shaped in my brain, but Every time I get a new email, it it's there's so much insight, you yeah. know, the people and the thing that's been the most revealing is everyone being like, oh, thank God I need to get that off my chest. They're right. holding it in. And thank you for asking this question. Yeah, but mostly just like, oh, thank you for letting me rant. I haven't been able to say that ever. Wow. Yeah. Imagine keeping all that <laughs> bottled up. Right. That's what pushed me out into the forefront. And now you're going to take hits for the team. Yep. Because I can. Yeah. Well, thank you. On behalf of the team, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) Tune in next week for another riveting episode that will change your life, help you get out of your own way, and solve all the world's problems. I want to thank our composer, Jared Elias, my co-producer and cousin, Maggie, and all of you out there listening. This has been Walk-In's Welcome with Bridget Phetasy. I'm Bridget Phetasy, and you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> it's the dumbest line. <laughs>